I don't think 10 years ago, I ever thought that I'd be able to make an album. But I think that through Opus One Studios, I think you've really demonstrated an example of allyship. Hi, everybody. I'm General Alan Salisbury, host of Coda Support's Profiles in Service podcast. In this podcast, we explore the many dimensions of service, things like service to the nation, service to our community, and even service to humanity. Our guest today is Whitney Parnell, founder and CEO of a nonprofit organization called Service Never Sleeps. We'll explore that and some other sides of Whitney, which I think you'll find very interesting. So Whitney, uh, you can sort of complete your uh, introduction of who you are here. Uh, let's start by talking about your upbringing. I know you're a child of a foreign service family. Uh, that's very much like a military brat, I guess. Uh, what was your experience like growing up and how did that shape perhaps your thoughts of what you wanted to do with your life? Sure, sure. Well, first of all, thank you so much for having me, Alan. I'm just very honored and humbled that you want to be able to spotlight me and the various aspects of my work, as you as you so well put. And yes, uh, my name is Whitney. My pronouns are she, her. And I, I often say that the most stressful question that I can be asked is, where are you from? Because to your point, uh, as a foreign service kid, I have no idea. So... I was born three days after Christmas. My parents had been in Paraguay at the time. They had flown up to Colorado for the holiday season with my mom's parents in Colorado, had me, and then a couple weeks later flew back down to Paraguay. And so I spent my whole life living outside of the United States between Latin America and West Africa, all the way through my youth. I didn't live in this country until college, though I am African-American. And it was amazing. I, it, I'm so blessed for the life. And I think that some of the biggest takeaways for me were that diversity is a beautiful, wonderful thing that only makes us better. And all the data proves it, right? Like all the data proves that diversity only makes things better. And I feel like I got to experience that firsthand through the beauty of the humanity of people. And then the other big thing as a takeaway is that social injustice is global. It is universal. No society is exempt from it, as I witnessed all over the world, including once I actually was living in the United States. So amazing lifestyle, so so blessed and grateful, gave me so much perspective. I have to acknowledge my parents who just are the most amazing people I know. I want to be like them. If I could just be an ounce of them, I will call that success because I think that their posture was also a really great example for me where we entered humbly to learn and be proximate to the cultures and um, just be grateful to be in community with so many different people and always intent on trying to learn more about the cities and the countries and the cultures that we were visiting. They just really instilled in me a humble posture of like humanity and community and curiosity as well, which I think was just really critical to how I experience that lifestyle. 
Any uh, one country stand out in particular that uh, in your memory? I mean, in so many different ways. Uh, I lived in three different cities in Mexico just throughout. So I lived in Monterrey. I lived in Nuevo Laredo, but actually crossed the border every day to go to school in Laredo, Texas. And that was an experience. I graduated high school from Mexico City. And so most of my youth was spent in the country of Mexico, though different parts of it. And just what an amazing experience to have. I would say stand out in a different way was definitely living in Accra, Ghana. That was during my formative years, ages 12 to 15, I believe. And um, all I can say is that I felt like I was home. Being African-American and my ancestors having been enslaved Africans, I don't know my roots. And when I lived in Ghana, everybody was so warm and welcoming. And I felt like I was just meant to be there. I felt like I was in community all the time. And that memory and that sense of community and home and filling in puzzle pieces to blinks that I'll never know as an ancestor of enslaved people um, is a very special thing for me. In terms of uh, your early education, did you have the opportunity to go to uh, local schools in the host country that you were living in, or were they foreign service provided schools? Great question. For the, so the main difference was when I lived in Nuevo Laredo and we would cross the border to go to a public school in Laredo, Texas every day. Um, but otherwise, usually we went to an international school that was run by that local government and was the hub for where a lot of international students would go to school. And admittedly, it was also the place where a lot of um upper class financially people of that location would go as well. So you're probably exposed to even more cultures through the uh, students that you were surrounded by in the international schools. Absolutely. It was amazing. This, I mean, everyone's always like, wasn't it hard moving around? And, you know, I, I imagine that the lifestyle very much instilled in me an ability to be able to be like, all right, we're done here and move on for better or worse psychologically. Um, so it, it, I always loved going to the next place for the most part. Ghana was pretty hard to leave, I must admit. Um, but I, I liked moving around. And so whenever people were like, that must have been so hard. I'm like, no, th that upbringing was the most amazing, blessed thing uh, that I could ever ask for. Just like military brats, uh, they often celebrate in later life the fact that their life was so enriched by uh, their experience as a mm. military brat growing up in foreign countries and, mm -hmm. and having that same experience. Tell me about your college. Where did you decide to go to college and what did you major in and did you have aspirations that, of a career in mind as you had that uh, college education? Uh, that. <laughs> I feel like my family, even listening to this, is going to chuckle. Um, I went to Washington University in St. Louis, and I went there with all intentions of being a journalist. My mom was a broadcast journalist. She was a famous weather woman in Colorado Springs. And um, I definitely, there was definitely a part of me that still has that piece. And so I went wanting to follow in my mom's footsteps to be a journalist. <laughs> Shortly into my college career, though, I was like, I am meant to commit to social justice work. 
I just knew it. Um, admittedly, I was also the type A person that felt like I needed to have a plan for everything. And so I went in like, okay, there's only a journalism minor here. So I'll get a minor in communications and journalism and I'll double major in English and Spanish. I went in with that plan. I think in hindsight, I wish I had given myself more time to just explore. I always say based on what was offered at WashU, may have been more fitting for me to have doubled in African and African-American studies and women and gender and sexuality studies. Um, but I'm trying to work on my regret issues and be grateful for the fact that I was able to maintain the Spanish language and my knowledge of it. And an English major is great in terms of being able to do critical thinking and really hone in on, on my writing skills. And so, yeah, I went there with plans to be a journalist with those studies with intention. And shortly into that, um, despite the declared majors, was like, nope, social justice work is the work for me. Well, if your journalism training really fostered the notion of you have to approach something new from a fair and balanced uh, perspective and, and really research it to get to know it before you draw conclusions, that could be very helpful in a lot of aspects, even in the uh, pursuit of social justice. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And you know what? Everything was set up for the path for the direction that I went down. But what I'll also say is, as I reflect on my memories from college, they were so important and very much from like a human and social and community level, because I've been thinking about how WashU is known for its rigor. And I've really been trying to unpack just how culture makes us feel like success is working your hardest, getting no sleep and no rest. And that was very much the culture there. We were a culture of nerds and in a great way. Like I love being a nerd and who really inspired each other to work hard. And I have reflections about, you know, there's a way to show up your best and not feel like you have to just literally deplete yourself. So I've been thinking a lot about like how I approached academics and how I did it with so much rigor that definitely sharpened my work ethic. But I go back and think about, <laughs> I should have rested more. <laughs> I wish that I could have challenged more this idea of just all-nighters being celebrated and parties in the library all nights. You know, I have to, that's not the healthiest way to be. But I think that standouts for me outside of just the academic rigor were definitely my standout class was my Black feminism class, where that was my, um, that was my sophomore year. And for the most part, I had been taking English and Spanish classes and um, the requirements of like economics, which was a struggle for me. But Black feminism was one of the first classes where I was like, I just want to take this. And it was amazing and just really opened me up to just understanding that intersectionality, but being in an intimate group where I was able to just unpack my experience relative to society. And it just little did I know how much, how important <laughs> that would be for my particular career. But then easily college, what stood out most was the community aspect. Like I was a part of a historically black scholarship program. Um, so very grateful to have had that financial support to, for WashU. But I was so grateful for being able to 
enter in with an established community that celebrated our diversity in many ways. And um, that community mattered so much. My older sister went to Wash U. So she was a senior my freshman year and how she and her friends were just, they just engulfed me with love <laughs> and I was just protected and supported. I think about how there was a table in my senior year in the, the new like lunch area um, that was the table that no matter where you were coming from, you knew that you could go to that table and it was called Blavity, Black Gravity, where you'd have community there. And my close friends from there, led by Morgan Devon, my close friend, Aaron Samuels, Jeff Nelson, um, they founded Blavity, the actual internet platform now, right? As a result of that table at Wash U that I used to frequent every day of my senior year. So when I think a lot about my experience with college, it's it's really being able to come more into myself in terms of my identity and my purpose with the skills being sharpened around it. Wow, that's a lot to unpack for me. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, but but uh, all good. Uh, and I heard you say uh, all-nighters, uh, no sleep, no rest, etc. Sounds like service never sleeps to me. But the seeds were born back then, maybe even. So, yeah. Um, <laughs> In your uh, education, you mentioned that one course uh, where um, you really thrived and you found, I think, some more direction. And in, in part in that, you, you said, I had a lot to unpack. And it, I was thinking earlier of a question when you first focused on the uh, social justice area, that I was wondering if there were things building up inside you that you were just looking for an outlet to get out in that social justice vein. Is that fair to say? Those were the things that you were unpacking, experiencing? Yeah, definitely. I've always been really committed to community service as a way to be proximate, right? Like not paternalistic or savior-like, but proximate to the community, giving of myself in the way that is asked and needed of me. And so service has always been very important to me throughout my, my youth. And I think in college, as I was starting to, well, I'll say a few things. Living in Mexico City was an amazing experience. The school that we went to, I was the one Black person in my high school. And then my younger sister and I were the only two Black people, and there were a few others. And we had a lot of anti-Black experiences in Mexico City. So already there were some seeds planted about just what it means to be Black in this world. And so then I think being at Wash U, living in the United States, having a lens to be able to unpack the specifics of racism in this country's history, as well as being around my own community in all of its diversity and diverse experiences, and just being able to put language to my experience, as well as what I was unpacking in the world around me. Yeah, definitely there were puzzle pieces coming together that went beyond just the surface level of um, injustice to the roots of where it comes from, for sure. I don't, I don't think of uh, Washington University as an historically Black college university. Uh, so I, uh, I think I'm right in that it's not. Uh, mm -mm. And uh, how was the racial situation there? I think just like any institution, there is work to be done. So like I said, I'm really grateful that I was a part of a historically Black scholarship group that established really special community. Um, I loved being a part of the Association of Black Students. And like, I always felt like 
people had my back and that I was in community. And I also loved like the fact that I was an RA and got to uh, have freshmen that I lived with and supported and that there was so much diversity amongst even my floor and still close relationships built. That I was a part of an honorary that was diverse and close relationships built. And still there were issues of um, learning the fact that you had to walk around particularly heightened if you were a black man with your backpack at all times, right? Even when going to go get food so that you people would know that you were a student. There were the issues of the microaggressions in classrooms of not being called on. Just <laughs> all, all of the microaggressions that happen in, in a closed in space. There were certainly issues of interpersonal dynamics going on, um, particularly when people were drunk, uh, right? And some of their true colors could, could show up. So I would say that I had my experiences of beautiful community, um, both with Black people, but also with other races, beautiful relationships and friendships, and still experience and witness plenty of racism from interpersonal to institutional levels. Per, uh, fresh out of school, uh, mm -hmm. out of Washington University, uh, degree in hand, uh, where did you head? What, what was your first early work experience and, and how did that go? I came to DC to serve with the AmeriCorps program City Year, where I was actually a part of the one team <laughs> that was not serving in schools. So City Year primarily has uh, AmeriCorps members in classrooms supporting students in their academics. I was part of the one team that planned service days all over the city. Um, so I was there for two years, my second year as a team leader leading that team. Yeah, uh, an organization that I know and love, and I assume your uncle Rob had something to do with maybe your uh, getting into City Year. Was that part of it? I definitely knew of City Year because of my uncle who had who had been in executive leadership there. My older sister also did City Year. I just, like I just want to be like my sisters too, and so I was always happy to follow in my older sister's footsteps because that just meant that I was doing right. So yeah, there was definitely a history of City Year, a history of AmeriCorps with our family. My Three of my sisters did city year, two of my sisters, sorry, did city year along with myself. So three of us did city year and my other sister did Teach for America. And for those who don't uh, know about city year, they're in 17 plus now cities all over uh, America. They typically send a team of about 10 or so uh, young, idealistic, but uh, very enthusiastic young people who are spending a year of service. Uh, and they uh, assist teachers in the classroom and mainly focus on at-risk kids to keep them in school and on track to graduate. Uh, it's a wonderful program. So I'm, uh, I think that had to be a fabulous experience for you. It was very informative. I've met, like, I met one of my best friends, Samson, who, as you'll later hear, uh, is a co-founder for Service Never Sleeps and our COO. He was on my team my second year, and we just had an immediate bond. And like, I met my best friend through City Year. I met my strongest mentor, Niels Ribeiro Yamafio, at City Year. I think the relationships were really stand out. Um, and I think that there are also some challenges just institutionally with any form of trying to do service in the right way. Um, so there were also some takeaways in terms of like the saviordom that a lot of people would show up with. Like, I want to help these poor black and brown kids who just need a good role model, right? Like they're uh, with anything 
you can hold uh, what you can take positively from an experience, which I certainly took from City Year, as well as where there is room for growth um, and which informed my path moving forward for sure. Would you say you had a lot of responsibility as part of a, a city or team in a school? Did you feel that responsibility? I definitely felt a lot of stress. Um, as a reminder, you know, I wasn't in the classroom, so we oh, planned right. service that's days that. pretty re regularly. So sometimes it would feel stressful that we were just always planning the next thing and like representing the organization. <laughs> um, but it definitely, once again, honed in on my work ethic for sure and allowed me to you know, fall into or develop leadership, leadership skills at a, at a young age, like leading a team and whatnot. Um, but yeah, I was very intentional about trying to remind myself that I was a part of a community, just trying to do the best that I could. Um, and that, you know, everything was not on me as one person, uh, because I wanted to make sure that I wasn't transitioning into that savior mentality that can often be a default when doing a service year or any type of service. So let's move on to Service Never Sleeps. Where did the idea come from about Service Never Sleeps? And uh, how did you, as a uh, young, not too far out of school graduate, uh, go about founding an organization like that? Right, right. It's, it's funny, you planted seeds earlier. Even today, people are like, does, does Service Never Sleeps because Whitney never sleeps? Is that why <laughs> you named it that? But I'm working on it because I do not believe in martyrdom. <laughs> I believe in rest and restoration. But so there was actually an interim period where after city year, I worked in the houselessness field. Um, and so I worked in uh, the both end of a women's transitional housing program by night. And by day, I was an outreach worker supporting neighbors exper chronically experiencing houselessness. And grateful for that work again, especially the proximity that I got to have with people and really learn from them to be informed by how the best way that I need to show up. So working for great organizations that really just lack the capacity to execute their missions as fully as they could. Meanwhile, as a young person, what, 24 years old, I was talking to peers of mine who were like, I used to be so involved in college. And now in corporate America, all I do are like spreadsheets and PowerPoint decks. Um, I'm just quoting them. I uh, Obviously, people have intention behind their work, but they would be just be saying they used to be so involved and now they're just stuck doing their work, right? And so the big idea originally for Service What Never Sleeps was what would it look like to create a year of part-time service? Given how much I learned and grew from my service year with AmeriCorps that was full-time, what would it look like to do this combination of my experiences thus far that centered injustice, right? Centered wanting to work towards social justice and engage young people, match them with local nonprofits to do skills-based service to help these nonprofits grow in their capacity to execute their missions more broadly and build our next generation of leaders who were committed to being involved in their communities, being able to hold the both end that we're not all meant to do social justice work as our careers, but we can all do something. So that was the really big idea. I built a co-founding team. I called up Samson Gurma first and was like, hey, here's my idea. And yeah, so that was the, the original basis of Service Never Sleeps, where the original signature program 
is a year of part-time service for working young professionals where they're matched with local nonprofits to do 10 hours a month of skills-based service to help these nonprofits grow in capacity while also participating in a monthly leadership development program that is really deepening their understanding of justice from a racial justice lens. Um, so yeah, the original big idea was the fellowship. There was more to come, but I'll pause here. <laughs> okay. Well <laughs> Um, so have you uh, basic? you said the original ideas have is there been a pivot along the way now and uh, what is service never sleeps today I like to call it a deepening <laughs> and yeah so when I first started our first year we started our first fellowship class I I, I went full-time with a hope and a prayer in fall of 2015 we launched our first class in early 2016 and things were going well i loved our first class and i was getting nervous about the narrative that turned into very much like we've got this triple win of millennial corporate nonprofit outputs and i was like the purpose here was always justice it was always to support orgs doing justice work and commit people to being invested in their communities. So I was already having some tension with the intention of the program, but what the narrative was becoming. And I was really wrestling with that. And then in 20, November 2016, the elections happened. And um, it was a lot of wrestling for me. We're on an individual level. I was thinking, you know what, as a Black woman, I am done hearing that I have the primary responsibility to address anti-Black racism and sexism. That feels most like white people's and men's work. And if I'm saying that, then in my areas of privilege as a straight, cisgender, non-disabled person with housing, Christian person with U.S. citizenship, then I have the responsibility to show allyship just in the ways that I would, I would say white people and men need to show to me. While simultaneously, we were just getting flooded with so many people submitting inquiries saying, this is a social justice org. I want to be involved, but there's no access point for me. There's just this year-long fellowship for millennials. How do I get involved? And so the big idea for me was really just bringing together really my expertise and being like, you know what? we need to create an allyship training. We need to create a training that, that equips people to recognize where do you have privilege? This is where you should be. That's where you should be an ally. And this is how to be an effective ally. And so in early 2017, we just pivoted, we deepened the whole organization to make that our, our mission, where we tried out this training and it deepened our fellowship, right? Because now our fellowship had an anchor in being about allyship through their service. And so early 2017 was piloting that out in full transparency. I was very aware of how so many people have a problem centering race. And I was giving this training as a black woman. So I would make sure to be like, and everything else, right? Um, then I was in Charlottesville unapologetically as a counter protester against the white supremacy showing up that day. I'll be messed up from the for the rest of my life from that. But that was the moment for me where I was just like, race is at the center of everything you address race in its fullness that allows you to work towards everybody's liberation and we can't do that without really centering and understanding anti-black racism so like summer fall 2017 was the unleashing for me where it was just like we are a racial justice organization 
that trains allyship through a racial justice lens that everybody can be a part of when you think different races, when you think intersectionality. And, you know, that's what we've been deepened in. So now Service Never Sleeps still has our signature fellowship um, that is rooted in racial justice allyship. And I'd say that what we're most known for, despite our fellowship being our signature program that we put most of our energy and intention into, easily what we're most known for is our allyship training, which at this point we give a couple of times a week. It's, <laughs> it's a lot, yeah. Okay, for a little bit of context here, mm -hmm. um, your classes of, of fellowships, uh, can you give me a profile of what the group of fellows that you brought in look like? And I think you need to address the, the racial diversity that you might see in that. Sure. We just launched our seventh class um, a month and some change ago. And I would say the, the profile is young people anywhere from ages 22 to 35, um, who for the most part work in the corporate sector, um, but we also often have representatives from the nonprofit space as well, who also want to do this service here. Um, in terms of identity, it has varied. Sometimes um, it's been a uh, 50% white, 50% Black, Indigenous people of color. Um, one year, it was a, a group of all white people, which I take responsibility for that and not having the intention to really uh, recruit with intention and be intentional about like people accessibly knowing about this program. So the racial makeup has um, always varied, but we always say this is a fellowship for all identities, right? This is because every, as, as Martin Luther King Jr. said, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., everybody can be great because everybody can serve, right? So this has always been one that is open to all identities, all races. And the beauty about allyship is that we all have areas of privilege in some way or another. And so everybody can learn about how to be intentional allies in their areas of privilege as well. So the classes have varied in terms of diversity. Um, and just like everyone else, oh, not everyone, um, I ideally like every other institution, we are also really committed to um, diversity, equity, and inclusion in, in many forms, including racial diversity. Okay. Um Let's shift gears again and bring out another Whitney Parnell, the singer-songwriter. Uh, where did your training and interest in music come from? Oh, well, I'd say that my parents and sisters <laughs> have had to bear the brunt of my love for music ever since coming out of the womb. Um, I've always just really loved music. I'd say that probably my first memory is what is now my first, my favorite song still. It's somewhere out there um, from an American tale, <laughs> like the cartoon. Uh, that's my first memory of a song and loving it and singing it nonstop. And I've just always loved music. It's always been my first love, honestly. And so I would say um, elementary school, you know, I started singing in the choirs and then by middle school and high school, I was, always in the choir, always doing the talent shows. College, um, I was a part of my, the, the gospel choir there, as well as like the school chorus. So I was always really intentional about making sure that music was a part of my life. And then admittedly, my first several years, 
out of college, I kind of just gave it all up. With City Year, where I was working so many hours a day, I I just felt like, you know, I've got to commit my life to justice work, which means that music's just got to go because I don't have time for it, which is such a scarcity mentality. <laughs> uh, but I just gave up music for years. And literally a piece of me was missing in that. And then um, the church that I go to, Zion Church, they have the best praise and worship team that I've ever seen. They were hosting auditions and I was like, let me go for it. And I got into that under the amazing leadership of Joshua Davies, who's the music director of the Zion Music Program, and the late Charles Brown, who was the vocal director who just recently passed away. And under Charles's leadership, I learned the best that I ever could have learned for almost 10 years in, um, in my vocals, in my ability to like hear music i i will always have so much gratitude and joy for just in my young adult years how much i was able to grow vocally under charles c brown and singing at church allowed me to just get that rigor back and that regimen back for music where we were literally being trained like professionals and every wednesday we'd go to rehearse and then you know when we were on rotation sunday singing four times that day for all four services so i was just happy to have that back in my life i knew pretty early in my life that i was never about to be a famous singer that wasn't going to be my career i just wanted to be able to do it regularly and then when I got the idea for Service Never Sleeps, I was like, why not just go for all of life? I'm spiritual and I believe that we're given many gifts and live into all of them. YOLO, you only live once. And as I was really upending my or uprooting, upending my whole life to focus on this passion for this nonprofit, I was like, let me try with music too. And so Alan, that's where we were connected, where I was like, you know, I've been writing these songs that would just come to me for 10 years. Just, I would just be hit by these social justice ideas and songs. Um, some of which then I would, I'd work with people who made up those marginalized identities to really tailor the song and do it right. A lot of the songs mean some of my own experiences. And I had just been doing, it had been a side thing for 10 years. So when I got the idea for Service Never Sleeps, I was like, what if I just use this time to also just make a soundtrack, like, like a social awareness album while I'm investing myself in social justice work? So I asked Joshua Davies, my music director at church, if he'd be willing to be the producer. He's the most amazing musician that I know. Um, he said, okay. And Alan, I found out that you had <laughs> a charity label that arranged for proceeds for projects to go to a local nonprofit. And I was like, well, if, Al, if Opus One is willing to fund this album, I'm not trying to make money from these songs. How about we, if there's a way to direct them to Service Never Sleeps as a Whitney project going to this organization, let's try. And here we are. <laughs> well, first, let's the audience think that uh, there was a uh, split personality here, one a musician and one a social service uh, aficionado. Uh, I, it's all come back together, as Whitney has just uh, told you. And, and now it's time for full disclosure on my part to say that uh, I did play a role in helping uh, bring this music uh, to life. And this is a, an album, Whitney Parnell sings, What Will You Do? And there are nine tracks on it, eight songs. And the initial track 
is Whitney's verbal explanation of what it's all about. And then there are eight songs, and we call them on this album, Songs of Social Awareness. To, uh, can you talk about some of the songs on here? And, uh, what do you think that this, this music may be able to do in furthering your interests and causes? Sure. Well, like I said, the original motivation was just, I would just literally be struck spiritually with words, with music. And I would just, I put it to paper in like a journal that I had where I captured my music. And as I settled more into myself and my calling in social justice work, I realized that everything that I want I do, I want to funnel through that, including my music. And so the songs, um, some of them are personal experience, um, ranging from issues about being a Black woman uh, uh, to just being Black, period. But there are other songs for other forms of injustice that I do not face, but I was given proximity to people who do hold those identities and really worked with me and supported me in making sure that the language was executed well. And I always say it's songs of social awareness because all of the songs are very heavy. I always give a warning at sensitive topics because the idea is that nobody should have to deal with what is talked about in each of these songs. Like they're actually injustice, each of the songs. But the idea behind it is that you listen to these songs as a way to evoke empathy and compassion and then leave with, okay, based on all of the hurt going on in the world, what am I going to do? AKA, what will you do? And um, for the most part, I had written those songs over the course of like 10 years prior. And I remember in particular the talk that was not one of the original songs. And now it's probably the most famous one on the album. That's uh, that was not one of the original songs. And then in 2017, Alton Sterling and Philando Castile were killed back to back the one day after the other. And I was just so sick of it. I was sick of it. I still am as we have so many more names of, of black people killed by police, but it was just a moment where I was like, what does it mean that for decades since the car has been around, but for centuries in terms of anti-Black racism, Black guardians have had to tell their loved ones, this is what you do if you're stopped by the cops. I don't care if you did anything wrong. Just come back to me alive. So just do these things. And I was frustrated that I was feeling so much pain and anger. And there were still people, particularly white people, who were like, I don't understand the big deal. So I wrote the talk just one night at like 3 a.m. where I was like, I want you to imagine being a parent, having to give your kids the talk. And so I called up Josh and I was like, we got to include this one in the album. <laughs> so that was, that's, a, that's a pretty big standout one for me. I think another standout one is um, Fingerprints. While I originally wrote that song years prior, now it feels like my theme song for how I feel about Charlottesville and how I feel about despite the fact that that is years ago, I am still traumatized by the experience, like invisible fingerprints on me. I'm excited about the, the most recent single, My Life, because again, that was one that I wrote years ago that was supposed to just feel very general for everybody to relate to a sense of isolation and pain. And now it absolutely feels like being a Black woman. So 
the whole thing is just a very emotional project for me based on experiences, based on experiences that I know others have had, uh, based on the amount of time that it took <laughs> to do this project. And it's just an artistic expression of how we can all be connected to each other. It's interesting that you wrote this, uh, My Life, some years ago, because it is so relevant today. Uh, let's go ahead and play uh, for the audience a, uh, a music video of my life, and they can uh, see for themselves uh, your talent coming through. Do you know what it's like when people walk by and don't even see you when they pass? Do you know what it's like to run for your life and still in last do you know what it's like to cry and to cry but nobody hears your voice but the ones in your head are screaming so loud can't think clearly through all of the noise this is my I think everybody should have experienced the talent coming through, uh, and I hope they followed the message that, that you were uh, evoking through the, your fabulous vocal talents as well. So Thank that's, you. Can I, can I say one other thing, Alan? Sure. I do just want to take this moment to say, um, not only are you responsible for literally making my dreams come true <laughs> as as Opus, the funder, the, the owner of Opus One Studios, I don't think 10 years ago, I ever thought that I'd be able to make an album. But I think that through Opus One Studios, I think you've really demonstrated an example of allyship, right? Like, um, obviously, you are a white man and I am a black woman. And um through this project has been a, you've been just a really great example of humbly providing your resources and um, your platform as a way to amplify these issues, particularly racial justice issues. And that's exactly what we talk about, that allyship is about leveraging your privilege to support marginalized communities and peoples in the means that you have. And I think that this collaboration not only has been a great example of community and relationship, but also an example of the many ways that allyship can be done and executed. So I felt like I just had to say that.
Okay, thank you for saying that. <laughs> very generous. Yeah. Um, and for, for, again, for the audience, uh, the album is available from opus1studios.com. Uh, uh, it's on Spotify and all of the digital download services, et cetera. Uh, and 100% of the profits, Whitney, as the writer singer, would normally get royalties from a recording. I, as the publisher, would normally try to make profits. But for Opus One Studios, the model is 100% of the profits go to a designated beneficiary. And in this case, Whitney has selected Service Never Sleeps as the beneficiary. So supporting her music is supporting her cause as well. Finally, uh, as we're getting a little long on time here, I, I want to explore, maybe it's a sensitive area, but I uh, rush in where fools and angels fear to tread. Uh, and so I'm gonna ask you uh, about critical race theory. Critical race theory is a very controversial thing today, more honored for its misunderstanding uh, than its understanding. But to, what does critical race theory mean to you in terms of the, the definition? What is the substance of it? I really appreciate the language that you use to set it up, more honored. What did you say? More honored for its Through its misrepresentation. Yes. Misrepresentation. <laughs> Thank you for that. Because... <sighs> You're right, it is a sensitive topic that I have no issue talking about. And so what I always tell people to understand is that critical race theory is like a decades old framework that was contributed to put together by uh, many activists, scholars, academics, where the premise is understanding that basically racism is systemic, understanding that beyond what people usually think of racism as the individual beliefs and like interpersonal harm done, really being able to have a lens of understanding how race is historically embedded in many institutions, um, in all institutions really. And the origination was particularly through a policy and legal lens. And so actual critical race theory is a framework that is studied at the higher academia level, like primarily grad school, law school. So I always start off by saying that your kids in grade school were never learning about critical race theory and nobody's trying to teach about critical race theory now because that is a like high academia type of study. What I do think makes it sensitive and is the thing to really emphasize here is that it, the, the issues that people are having and hence have given the wrong label to is having to truth tell about race and having to truth tell about the history of race, which is deeply intertwined with this country's history, right? Like we cannot deny the history of colonization and indigenous genocide. We cannot deny slavery and Jim Crow Right. And so that is what is really coming up for people is really wanting to push up against that. And what I always say is truth telling about this in our schools is not an attack on anyone. If you understand that race is something that's embedded systemically as opposed to an individual mindset, I think that actually gives room for grace and humility to have that lens as opposed to an attack on people. And so I think that's the most important thing to understand is that we've got to truth tell and truth tell about history and understand that race has played an important role in the world's history, including the United States history. And um, 
the issues that people are having around that, that's what I think we've really got to be addressing as opposed to the, the wrong term. Let <laughs> me jump in mm-hmm. right on that again, where angels mm-hmm. fear the tread. And I'm going to say that I believe that what most people, and I believe it's misrepresentation, think about it is that what is taught to our children today, and I'm thinking of my kids, white privileged children, perhaps, which they would fall into that category. They're much too old to be kids at school. But uh, (laughs) the point is that we should hate America because it's been so wrong in its treatment of it. And we should be all feel personal guilt for this. And I think that's going uh, personally a step way too far. And I don't think that's what's intended here. What I think is intended is they understand all of the the history, as you've said, the complete history, uh, and take that into cognizance to understand race relationships in the broader context today. Uh, And of course, maybe adapt their behavior accordingly, but not out of a sense of guilt, out of a sense of what's right and correct. Thank you, Alan. And I'll say two things to that. Working backwards, what I'll say being the more possibly tense part of this is I think that what can be uncomfortable for some people, um, I was reading the book Begin Again by Eddie S. Cloud, and he put so wonderfully some language about how once you understand the history, people have the right to have the reaction that they do to it. So I think that what can be uncomfortable for some people, particularly people who identify as patriots and are proud to be from this country is a discomfort with the fact that some people, particularly Black people, Indigenous people, people of color, based on this history, really have tensions with with this country, right? Like it's it's hard to hold, it is hard to hold (laughs) being grateful for so many things and believing in a lot of this country's values and being particularly an ancestor of enslaved individuals, knowing that in parallel, so much harm was done to my people, right? And so I think that what can be comfortable, uncomfortable for people is having to be okay with the fact that people hence have different dispositions with their relationship <laughs> um, being in these lands and with this country. So that's just the thing that I'll name because I think sometimes people will so quickly try to shut people down and say, well, you should be proud. Um, So just drop it. I think that where there is complication is being able to understand where for some people it, it just lands differently, all things considered. But the second thing that I'll say is just appreciation for what you said, right? that the point of this learning is so that we can work towards these the values that we all want to celebrate and believe in is so that we can show up as better people and i'm just really glad that you say it and to the point around allyship i'll just also name with transparency that's why it's important for white people to say that right because the fact of the matter is (laughs) some white people just receive it better from other white people than they would receiving it from me as a Black person. So I would just encourage and empower you to keep speaking like that, Alan, and to just know the fact that it makes a difference to exude allyship by that kind of truth-telling as well around the importance of this work. The United States of America is a flawed nation. It is not a perfect nation. No nation is perfect. But net-net, I will say that we are still a great nation. We are a nation I'm proud to be part of. We are working toward a more perfect union. Uh, No individual is perfect. 
we're all flawed in one way or another. And we have to accept our weaknesses and know our weaknesses so that we can use our strengths to improve ourselves and our nation. I always say this is forever work, right? Um, so I think the more that everybody can be committed to that forever work from the inside out, like I call it, I always say, imagine the collective, if we're all doing this work from the inside out to show up as best as we can for humanity, imagine the collective impact of that. So yeah, to your point, if we if we commit to this as forever work and are really willing to do that from the inside out and face the uncomfortable stuff too, I really think only good can come from that. Okay. Um we're going to wrap up now. Where do you see yourself in five or 10 years? What's you know, going to happen? <laughs> I'm such a planner. Like I actually, I have so much fun planning. Um, I have so many notebooks all over my house, just planning things. And so the type A in me loves to plan <laughs> for the future. And I really had to work on living in the now. So my hope is that I, I believe that my work is calling. Like I really, I always say, please don't expect any black woman to, <laughs> to give you what I'm giving to do this kind of work because it's difficult. Right. And so I do feel like I am called to do this work. So I hope that I am still living into this calling. I hope that I am still the activist who is trying to do love and action um, by inviting others into this work, but also doing the constant work on myself. So Racial justice work is the work. I hope that Service Never Sleeps continues to be doing amazing things and um, having the impact of transformation through collective action. And I hope to be thriving. That's been a big thing for me is that the, the point of this work is, I always say we're working towards shared humanity, a world where we're all embraced for who we are and able to thrive to reach our highest potential. That's why I do this work. And so what's really important for me in this season is that that also applies to me. <laughs> so I want to be doing this hard work, um, but also be thriving, which means music will all will be a part of that forever as well. So I hope I'm just living the artist life, the social entrepreneur life, the activist life, just doing all the things and not feeling limited like I have to only do one thing. I'm I'm sorry you were so depressed today and unwill unable to enthuse over your your work with. <laughs> you have a remarkable level of energy and uh, I tend to compliment you for that. Thank you Whitney Parnell for being with us today. Uh, thank you for your service to the community, your service to the nation. I think what your work is doing is good for America. What you do is very much uh, improving the nature of all of us as representatives of humanity. So with that, I will say, be sure to be looking for our next podcast, wherever you get your podcasts. And this is Alan Salisbury uh, from Coda Support Foundation, producers of Service never sleeps, no, but uh, producers of profiles in service. Thank you very much for your listening. podcast is powered by and copyright of the Code of Support Foundation. Code of Support Presents Profiles and Service is hosted by Major General Alan B. Salisbury and produced by Carly Euler. 
The opinions of the guests on the show do not directly reflect the stance of the Code of Support Foundation. To learn more about Code of Support, please visit codeofsupport.org or follow us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn, and YouTube. If you or someone you know is a service member, veteran, caregiver, or military family member in need of assistance, please visit codeofsupport.org slash get help or search for free resources at patriotlink.org.